church. I hope you're having a good fall. I'm praying for you, praying for so many of you specifically, and I'm just so glad to be in worship with you this morning. I have a, just a neat testimony I want to share at the beginning of the service this morning. Uh, many of you have heard some of the stories from this summer when we were in Belglade, Florida, and it was a wonderful experience that, that we had there, and there was this one day where we went into a neighborhood with a woman who lives in the neighborhood named Mavis, and you've probably heard us share some stories about her before. Anyway, we just had an amazing couple hours of ministry with her this last time we went down, and we came back sharing those testimonies. But very neat thing, at the end of our time uh, ministering with her, she shared with us a personal request, and it was that a dear friend of hers um, was suffering with cancer, and it sounded like the situation was pretty dire, actually. And um, I, I never quite understood the relationship totally, but it appeared to me that this woman had been of great support to Mavis and her family. And Mavis is an immigrant to this country and has worked really hard in the agricultural industry and at times has had limited resources. And it sounds like this, this woman had been someone who had been there for her and her family, spiritually and materially, but now was struggling from, from cancer. So we all gathered at the end, and we just spent some time praying on that, and uh, John led us in some more worship. I think it was Henry who, who led us in prayer for that, and uh, my phone started ringing with a Belglade number probably like two weeks ago, and it was Mavis wanting to tell me that her friend has been totally healed, and so she wanted to tell me that. And uh, so praise the Lord, and what a neat thing. Yeah, let's give God some glory. What a neat thing. Um, because it wasn't the kind of thing where there was an instant you know, answer to that prayer. We couldn't have even seen an instant answer to the prayer. It's not like her friend was there. But I was so glad that Mavis caught up with us and shared that with us. Um, it's cool to see God at work that way. Church, I know that many of you, week after week, come into our service and you are burdened and there are things that are heavy on you, pains that you carry. And no matter what those are, uh, first of all, we want you to know that there's a God that loves you. Uh, we love you too, and uh, we want to stand with you in prayer. So I'm going to say, you know, even today at the end of the service after we dismiss, if you are just in need of prayer, we want to make ourselves available for that, um, for someone to just stand with you and call out to the Lord. Sometimes, you know, particularly with long-term things, we lose our ability uh, to cry out to the Lord on our own, and sometimes we need a brother or sister to stand next to us and cry out for us. Um, so whether it's small or big, we want to invite you to come forward for prayer at the end of the service today. Well, we're going to be in Luke chapter 8. You can turn there, and it will be on the screen. Uh, we're continuing our journey through the Gospels. And uh, at first glance, today's passage might look like just some side details, but it's actually important to Luke's message, and we're going to unfold that today. Church, I want to tell you there's a lot of information that I'm hoping to impart today. Uh, I may have taken on more than I should have in the sermon content. And so I'm going to do my best to stay on track. You can pray for me. And uh, that means I'm going to stick closer to my notes today, if that's okay with you. I, I generally try to break away from them so I can connect with you more personally. But I just want to be so careful about what I say today and make sure that I say everything that needs to be said so I'm going to stay in my notes as much as possible. But we're going to read the first three verses of Luke chapter 8, and then we're going to be in various passages after that. 
So uh, you can just stay seated for today, and the passages will be on the screen behind me. But let's begin reading in Luke 8, verse 1. It says this, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now, the backdrop of this passage that I just read this morning um, is a way of life in both Rome and in religious Judaism that is characterized in leadership by domination and control. It is a given that domination and control are legitimate forms of leadership in Jesus' day. In Rome, scholars tell us, half, some think maybe more, of the population are comprised of slaves. That is, they don't really own anything of their own, and they own all of themselves, including their personal being, to another person. They are controlled and dominated. In Judaism, there's a religious elite, both in the temple and the synagogue, that has created a religious class that is set apart from the people. And so without a doubt, there's a pecking order in the days of Jesus regarding who's in control and who's not. And without a doubt, in both pagan Roman culture and in Jewish religious culture, women were often dominated and controlled. It's well attested in history. But at the beginning of Luke chapter 8, Luke gives us a picture of his Jesus and his entourage, so to speak, the people that are traveling with him as they're traveling throughout the land doing ministry. First of all, in Luke 8, uh, Luke mentions what Jesus is doing. They're traveling from town to town, from village to village, and they are proclaiming the gospel, literally proclaiming the good news. And we know from many other passages, even ones that we've explored in this sermon series so far, that Jesus' proclamation of the gospel is always accompanied by his demonstration of the gospel's power. So the preaching of the gospel is often accompanied by healings and the casting out of demons because his preaching is accompanied by power. And we also know this, that Jesus isn't doing this stuff alone. He's not the only one that's moving in power this way, proclaiming and demonstrating good news. He very quickly empowers the 12 mentioned in this passage to do the things that he is doing. But we know from other passages that he doesn't just empower the 12, but at different points in his ministry, there are more or less disciples who are following him from town to town, and he empowers them to do the same things that he is doing. And these unnamed individuals get to participate in the coming of the kingdom in Jesus's ministry. But here in Luke, we find something really interesting because if all that we've pictured in our minds so far are men traveling with Jesus, Luke gives us a different picture. He gives us some more information. He tells us that some of the disciples who were following Jesus in this kingdom ministry of proclamation and demonstration were women. And this passage gives us this information that many of them were actually financing the operation out of their own means. Now, we have limited information about many of these women, but there is some in this passage. Mary had been a recipient of Jesus' ministry of power because he had cast seven demons out of her. Joanna was connected 
to King Herod's household. She was a lady of the royal court, so to speak. And we don't know much about Susanna or the other many women that Luke says were following Jesus, but we know that they were involved in his ministry on earth. Now, in our modern culture, that might not seem like any big deal at all. We would probably barely, you know, even bat an eye to it. But you can't miss the radical nature of this passage in the time in which it was written. Jesus is a rabbi. That is, he's a religious teacher. In his day, it was common for rabbis to have disciples. It was not common for those disciples to include women. And when people saw this, you have to know, it would have seemed more than just odd. It would have seemed scandalous. But I love this about Jesus, that he's just not embarrassed to be with people. Don't you love this about Jesus? That out of his love, he is willing to risk scandal. If it's love that leads him there, he's willing to risk it. He's willing to, to risk that people are going to misunderstand, that people are going to rush to judgment. And he doesn't care because this is the kind of family that he's assembling. You know, we get this picture in Luke chapter 8. Rich and poor, people with demons and sickness in their past, women and men. And I don't know about you, but as I imagine them traveling from town to town, I imagine them laughing and talking, enjoying one another's company, and then they make it to the village, and then that village is poor and sick and broken come out, and this group of people that Jesus has assembled begin to move in love and power to bring the kingdom to their situation, and some of the people who get healed and delivered join the family as they go on to the next place. I love that picture of Jesus. You know, when we started to experience just the beginnings of some renewal here at our church, I remember us as church leaders saying, people who are really hungry and people who are really broken will love this. But people who want respectable religion won't like it as much, you know? And that's the kind of crew that Jesus is bringing around himself, the broken. People who sometimes by no choice of their own were considered outcasts of society, and he includes them in his discipleship family. And I just want to say to you, if that hasn't been your experience of the church, I'm so sorry. Because the church exists to bring Jesus to you. And this is exactly what Jesus is like. And so if church was a place where your status as an outcast was reinforced, I'm so sorry, because Jesus is bringing this family together. Isn't he wonderful? Don't you already see how the picture of leadership that Jesus gives us is so different than the sad picture we often see in politics and homes and business and too, too many times in the church, disregarding and throwing away people. Now, as I stated earlier, this detail by Luke isn't put in here by accident. It's meant to cause us to reflect on certain things. And I think we get a clear picture of some of what Luke is getting at when we consider this passage in the scope of the whole biblical story. And so in our very limited time together, I'm going to try to give you this overview. Maybe one of the best places for us to start is when God's people, the Hebrews, are slaves in Egypt. You can read about this in the book of Exodus. For a long time, they are dominated and controlled by Pharaoh, king of Egypt, forced into servitude. 
But God has compassion on his people, and he delivers them with a mighty display of power. And after he delivers them, he takes them into the wilderness where he reveals himself yet again to them in great power and glory. And it's critical to remember that as Israel was getting to know their God thousands of years before Jesus, as their God was revealing himself to them, they got to know him. One of the first things they got to know about him was that he was a liberator of slaves. They knew him as the God who freed them from slavery. In other words, they had been dominated, controlled, enslaved, and God delivered them from this, but he also delivered them to something else. He delivered them from slavery, but he delivered them to himself. And it became deeply ingrained in Israel that Pharaoh was not their king, but that God alone was their king. That God alone had authority to, over them as a people. And the laws that God gives his people from Mount Sinai are remarkable, especially in their time, for the way that they are tilted toward the just treatment of the weak and vulnerable in society and toward equality in general. As a matter of fact, modern people would read some of the laws in the Old Testament and think them to be radically unfair because of the way that they create this equalization. But this is how God wants his people to live in society. So it's no surprise to me that in this kind of social setting that God creates with his people, that we see Moses' sister, Miriam, playing a major role in the life of the nation. On the other side of the Red Sea, it is Miriam, who's a prophetess, who's prophesying and singing about God's victory. She's the one leading them in worship. Now, all throughout the story, Moses is clearly the primary leader with prophetic authority. There's no question. But Miriam and her brother Aaron are also uh, prophets who exercise influence in Israel. And it's true that at one point, Miriam and Aaron try to kind of take over Moses' authority. You can read about that in the book of Numbers, and God intervenes. But even with that, it shouldn't be lost on us that in this kind of social environment that God creates, Miriam exercises influence in Israel. When God's people move into the promised land, some years later, after their wilderness wandering, we find something stunning, that they have no king for many, many years. No king. Can you think of it? There was no nation on earth that did not have a king. But somehow Israel doesn't have a king. They're a federation of tribes, and they have leaders, but no king. Why? Well, I think one of the reasons is that it's deep in their national soul, because of their experience with slavery, that they reject domination and control as legitimate forms of leadership. Now, I can't sugarcoat you know, this period of Israel's history. There's a lot of disobedience. There's a lot of rebellion. There's a lot of violence in this period in Israel's history. But during this time period, God raises up judges to lead his people. And we find something interesting in the book of Judges, if you read it, that one of the best judges in this period of Israel's history and national life was a woman named Deborah. Now, I've said this before. I've heard people try to explain that Deborah was forced to lead in Israel because there were no men to lead at the time. But I, don't, I simply don't see that in the Bible. Deborah led because she was a prophetess anointed by God to lead. And in this peculiar nation where there was no king, no one had ever heard of such a thing, in this nation it was unusual, yes, but also conceivable that a woman could lead her people. And that's exactly what happened. 
But of course, for better or for worse, Israel eventually did get kings. And these kings, over time, became more and more wicked and corrupt. So God raised up prophets to speak to them. And one of the primary criticisms that these prophets have, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos, is that people have lost this sense of equality among themselves. What they don't criticize is is the amount of their religious activity because Israel was very religious in this time period. But the criticism is that they had begun to dominate and control one another. The rich began to oppress the poor. It's interesting, archaeologists have excavated villages early on in Israel's history, find houses that are generally speaking the same size. But at the time that Isaiah and Amos and Jeremiah are prophesying, you can tell just by the layout of the village that there's great disparities among the people. The insider begins to oppress the immigrant. The prophets begin to speak against the sexual exploitation of women. And repeatedly, the prophets warn people of coming judgment because they've embraced this inequality and often remind the people of their own national values with this phrase. I have one example in Amos 2.10. I brought you out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness. This is like the apologetic of the prophets for why God's people should repent. It's like the attitude of the prophets is, how dare you begin to oppress one another? How dare you begin to treat one another this way? You were slaves. You're a nation of slaves. You know the pain of being dominated and controlled by other people. How could you ever make peace with this as a way of life? Of course, God punishes the people. They're conquered by foreign nations, sent into exile. And interestingly enough, at their, one of their lowest moments in exile, God raises up a woman, Esther, to exercise extraordinary leadership to save her people. And it's fitting since I wonder if the people in this period of their national life were reminded of a time in their history when they had no king and Deborah led them. And then, many, many years later, hundreds of years later, Jesus. And as we've been saying this whole time, as we talk about Jesus, we're talking about far more than him just teaching some nice things or doing some nice miracles. Jesus is beginning a kingdom. And he's telling us what this kingdom looks like, what life under the king looks like. This is what he had been giving hints about since Mount Sinai to Israel. He was trying to tell them, this is what it looks like when God alone is king. This is what it looks like when God alone rules. And so it's no surprise that Jesus, as he begins to teach on the kingdom, gives us a picture of what it looks like for God alone to rule. And on the many things that Jesus teaches about, he teaches about leadership, because life involves leadership. But when he does so, he does so in a radical, radical way that totally turns upside down the way that we view leadership in the world. So Matthew 20, 25 to 26, Jesus says this, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Jesus is saying, you know how people in the world lead. You know what this is like. They lead like kings. They get control. They get power, and they manipulate and dominate other people so that they do what they want. And this is what Jesus says, not so with you. Not so with you. This is not what leadership looks like in the kingdom of God. Instead, look what Jesus does. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you, you want to be great in the kingdom or in the church, 
You must be your servant. He must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus just says what God had been saying all along in the scriptures. It's always inappropriate to dominate and control people who were created in the image of God, and this must especially be true in the church. It's radical because really, if we're honest, I think many times we talk about church leadership like the world talks about leadership. Jim and I have talked about this before. Sometimes people want their pastor to have kingly authority. Tell me what to do. And then you want us to tell you so that when it goes wrong, you can blame us, you know? Tell me what to do, you know? Or sometimes I get this kind of, people are trying to show respect to their pastor. I can appreciate some of that, but it's kind of this thing like, well, you're the pastor. You're the one with the authority. You're the one in charge. Guys, I don't want to stand before Jesus and that be my track record of leadership in the church. I don't want it. Jesus said this is the kind of leadership he values. You become last. You serve. And listen, there is influence in the church. There is leadership in the church. But the only kind of influence and leadership that Jesus values is the kind that wells up from a place of love displayed in acts of service to the people around us. That's what God values. And it ought to be what we value in our own leadership culture as well. So this is what Jesus says, don't lead like them. So you see, for all of those reasons, I'm just not surprised that as it turns out, Jesus had women disciples who were in the mix doing ministry. They got to be in on this, part of the kingdom coming to earth. And that's exciting. You know, collectively together, the Gospels tell us about Mary's special role in Jesus' coming. The prophetess, Anna at the temple, who prays over Jesus as a baby. These women disciples we just read about in Luke 8. Jesus' ministry of healing and deliverance uh, to women that were in bondage. The Samaritan woman who tells her village about this man, Jesus, who she met, who can forgive sins. The women who mourned as Jesus went to the cross, stood by him as he bled while everyone else abandoned him, and were the first to see and to report that Jesus was indeed alive. Think about that for a second. There was a point in the history of God's people, short, but there was a point where this amazing truth that Jesus had conquered death, that death could not keep its hold on him, that he was alive, this amazing truth was entrusted to only women at some point in the history of God's people. That ought to tell us something about the way God values women, the way Jesus valued them as true disciples. So because of all of this, I'm not surprised that in the book of Acts, and the Holy Spirit gets poured out on the church, he comes in power on both women and men, just as the prophet Joel said would happen hundreds of years later in the Old Testament. I'm not surprised in the New Testament church that we see women frequently prophesying in church gatherings, providing space, and it's likely leadership in their homes for early gatherings of Christians, that they receive all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We meet a woman named Phoebe who is a deacon in the church. We know from Acts that deacons function not just in caring for the poor, but also in preaching, healing the sick, casting out demons, and the like. The Apostle Paul speaks of a woman named Junia, in Romans 16, 7, and this is interesting because for many years in our Bibles, it was translated in the masculine, Junius, 
recent translations are correcting this, the reason being that the word Junius is unattested anywhere in the ancient world as a legitimate name, and it is definitely feminine in the Greek. The reason we've squirmed around this name is because Paul seems to recognize this individual, whoever she is, as having some kind of apostolic gifting. Priscilla, along with her husband, Aquila, are teachers in the early church and impart the knowledge of the scriptures to a man named Apollos who goes on to be a prolific teacher in the church. I'm not surprised that Paul teaches in Galatians that women and men equally receive the inheritance of God in Jesus and therefore receive the rights and the privileges that come with that status in God's family. So yes, Jesus had women disciples. Yes, he included them. Now, just for a moment, I also know that in the New Testament, there are some difficult passages related to women in leadership. Some of those passages, at first glance, seem to restrict the roles that women can play in the church. Primarily, not entirely, but primarily these passages are found in Paul's letters to the early churches. Maybe the most familiar is 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Now, I'm simply not going to have time this morning. You need to show me grace. To dig into these passages, although I have spent a significant amount of time studying them. See, this issue matters to me because I take very personally the responsibility of empowering people into the ministry that Jesus has called them to. And see, I do not want to stand before the Lord someday and say that because I just didn't study, you know, that I restricted people from stepping into their calling. I'm just talking personally. Now, I understand that on these passages, people struggle with them and have different interpretations. And so I just want to say this, speaking of not dominating and controlling, you don't have to agree with some of what I'm about to say for you to be part of our church. I recognize that there's debate surrounding some of these passages. You don't have to agree with me to be part of the mission of God here at Crestmont. But I do just want to say a few things about 1 Timothy 2.12 and other passages like of it. First of all, I believe that all of these passages, like all the passages in the New Testament, are the word of God. And as such, they are inspired and without error. That is a non-negotiable for me. But second, I think it's important to remember that Paul, when he writes his letters, he's not writing theological books, and he's not even writing instruction manuals for church leadership. Instead, these Holy Spirit-inspired letters are often written to address specific situations in specific churches and specific places in time. And so to understand these passages, we have to understand the circumstances that prompted the writing of the letter in the first place. So for instance, in 1 Timothy, Paul also says this, Stop drinking only water, he tells Timothy, and use a little wine because of your stomach and frequent illness. And we rightly understand that the meaning of this passage for the church today is not that we shouldn't use any medicine for our stomach except for wine, right? You can use Pepto-Bismol too, if you want to. I don't know why you'd want to, but you can, all right? Instead, we rightly understand the passage when it gives us insight into how Paul viewed medicine as a whole. Paul was deeply involved in healing ministry, but he was also not opposed to taking medicine when needed, according to the understanding of the time in which he lived, the culture in which he lived. So sometimes, not all the time, and this is more tricky than I'm going to be able to get into this morning, but sometimes Paul's words 
need to be understood in the context in which they were given. It's more complicated than I'm going to be able to address, but it is worth noting. Third, I think that if you want to understand how Paul teaches on the subject of domination and control, you should see the way in which he deals with slavery in the New Testament. See, Paul never advocates for revolution. And some people have actually criticized Paul over this because he never advocates for slaves to revolt. But he does command that masters and slaves should love one another as brothers and sisters. It's actually a far more radical kind of revolution. Because he tells them, look, if a slave has come to Christ, if that slave's master has come to Christ, they are now brothers or sisters in the gospel. And you know what? When love gets inserted into the equation in the institution of slavery in Paul's day, slavery is not going to last very long, is it? Now, it's important to note, because in this nation's history, there was a period of time when people would quote Paul's teaching on slaves obeying their masters to justify slavery as an institution. But Paul never justifies slavery as an institution. He inserts love into it. And as a matter of fact, when Christians in this country, when the abolitionist movement understood that the trajectory of the biblical story, including Paul's writing, was the insertion of love into human relationships so that we did not dominate or control one another, and as a result, they called for the abolition of slavery, they did interpret scripture right. We understand that. See, Paul didn't call for revolt, but he called for love, which is a revolution in and of its own kind. See, if you want to talk about our nation having a Judeo-Christian heritage, which I do believe it does, for all the imperfections that our nation has had, uh, the basis of who we are, our national soul, is, is grounded in this Judeo-Christian heritage, then this is what we should talk about, this strong belief that humans ought not dominate and control one another. And it is why the church should be people of freedom. It's why we should stand up for people whose voice is being taken away from them because we are honoring the image of God in them. And so in moments in our national history when we have corrected the wrongs or attempted to correct the wrongs, we are actually leaning into our Judeo-Christian heritage. And see, I'm concerned as our nation moves further away from that because you know what will happen? The only people who will be free are the people who are in power. The only people who are free will be the people who are in charge. And that's really the story of nearly every human civilization. So we at least attempted something different, failed hugely on some points, but at least the basis was there. And we're in danger when we don't recognize it. And the first place to start recognizing it is in the church. So for all of these reasons and more, I'm not going to have time to talk about all this this morning, I simply cannot interpret these difficult passages to reverse the meanings of the rest of the Bible that I just explained to you. If our interpretations, and this is something we should all be able to agree on, that if our interpretations of those passage, passages lead us to believe or to act like women should be dominated and controlled by men, I'm sorry, we've interpreted those passages wrong. That's my conviction. And before God, as someone who has some level of influence in the church, I have to lead in a way that is true to the way that I understand Scripture, and that's why I've led in that direction since I've been a pastor here. I simply can't interpret those passages to mean the limiting of the Holy Spirit-given gifts of women in the church in all times and places. 
Now, let's move away from that and get to three applications as I close. First of all, this should go without saying, but unfortunately, it needs to be said in our day and climate that the abuse physically, sexually, emotionally of women, either through words or actions, is so far from the heart of Jesus. Listen, I know this from firsthand experience, that if you want to talk about the issues of poverty, addiction, or mental illness, then you must also talk about the abuse of women at the hands of men, because those issues, poverty, addiction, and mental illness, often have as part of their root the abuse of women by men. And the fact that today, amazingly, we live in a climate And listen, just stick with me for a second because I'm going to balance this out. But we live in a climate when some evangelical church leaders, I don't think most, but some, are willing to excuse away, minimize, or ignore the abuse of women for political expediency. I don't think that can please the heart of God. No matter how you're handling voting in November. And of course, the big hypocrisy in our national debate is that if the statistics hold true, the people who are themselves criticizing the candidate that they perceive to be degrading women are likely themselves degrading women privately. They are likely viewing pornography and as a result enforcing the trafficking, enslavement, objectification, exploitation, and degradation of women. And before we get all high and mighty as a church, let's remember that many in our own fellowships, even many pastors, are participating in an industry of sex themselves through their secret habits. But I'm so glad that Jesus sets the prisoner free. Aren't you? What would we do without him, church? Listen, I was at a conference this last week, uh, just yesterday. It's been a long day. I was at a conference just yesterday, and on the stage was a woman who had been trafficked. One of the worst stories I've ever heard. Had been trafficked, exploited sexually for much of her life. Now she completed her master's degree, and she's leading a ministry for victims of sex trafficking. Amazing story. But she's standing there telling her story, and right next to her is a person who trafficked. At one time, he owned women, thought he did. And there they are standing next to each other, giving testimony to this Jesus who sets prisoners free. See, it doesn't matter what side of the degradation you're on. Jesus heals, and he puts things back together. Jesus will heal your oppressing, and he'll heal the oppression you experience. Jesus will heal your victimizing, and he will heal the victimhood that you've gone through. And somehow, Jesus is able to bring together the worst of this behavior on both sides of the spectrum and bring us together in a family where women are upheld and their dignity is protected. And church, whatever happens in the social climate, seriously, engage politically how you need to, but you must never budge on this that women are created in the image of God and deserve our love and respect. Second, I just want to say this. Guys, we need everyone for the mission. If the worship team could come forward. And I firmly believe that everyone involves women. Listen, at Crestmont, we have purposed in our heart to make disciples. 
And the passage that we just read lets me know that Jesus had women and men disciples. Because church, it's only when men and women together embrace this mission that we can truly accomplish everything that God has called us to accomplish. And surely, we don't read our Bibles and see God's design in creating us in the image of God, male and female, Scripture says. And to affirm that we need male leadership and influence in the home and in society, but we only need male leadership in the church. Certainly, there's some kind of disconnect there. Because God has created us to do this work together. God has designed it to be that there are spiritual mothers and fathers in the church. And so to me, if you want to ask who can do the stuff of the kingdom or who can be in leadership in the church, you must not ask who's allowed to dominate and control because the answer is no one in God's kingdom. Here's what you can ask. Who is allowed to serve? Because the one who serves is the greatest. And I would argue that anybody can sign up to serve. Anybody can serve in the kingdom of God because that's the fount out of which kingdom influence flows. It's the only kind of leadership Jesus recognizes. Serving him looks like women and men together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel giving good news, healing the sick, casting out demons, embracing the poor, doing works of mercy and justice. We can't do it alone. And praise God, he has indiscriminately poured out his Holy Spirit into male bodies and female bodies. He has indiscriminately poured out his Spirit into young bodies and old bodies, to anyone who names the name of Jesus so that we can reach our neighborhoods and the nations together with the love of Jesus. And lastly, you must hear this today, that I don't care who you are, you have a place in Jesus' entourage. You hear me? You have a place. Don't wait for a pastor to tell you that you have a place. Let Jesus tell you that you have a place in his entourage. If you're poor, don't wait for the rich to tell you that you have a place. You have a place. If you're black, don't wait for a white person to tell you you have a place. Listen, the only thing that you have to do to be part of Jesus' discipleship team that's going from village to village bringing the kingdom, the only thing that you have to do is give up your own agenda. Because this isn't about a male agenda or a female agenda or a denominational agenda, or a pastor's agenda, or a black agenda, or a white agenda, or a rich agenda, or a poor one, or a conservative or liberal one. Jesus sets the agenda. He decides where we go next. He decides where his family that he's forming for all eternity is going next. And as long as you can set your own agenda aside, you can be part of that team. And the neat thing is, all of our agendas set aside our agendas don't compete with each other anymore because we all only have one agenda, and it's to serve this Jesus. Do you see his tenderness? Do you see his welcome? As a man, I look at Jesus, and I just think I just want to be like him. That part of the marks of my ministry has to be that I can provide space around me for leaders to flourish and grow. For every leader in this church, women, Men, that's how you mark kingdom leadership. Is there space around you for people to also rise up in the leadership? 
Is there space around you for the Spirit of God to multiply? If there's not, if what's around you are limits and boundaries and hoops that people have to jump through, I think we've missed the mark. You could stand to your feet. Let's pray together.